Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. We've looked at our blessings in the Father in verses 1 through 6. We've looked at our benefits in the Son in verses 7 through 12. And now we look at our belongings in the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. But right away you should be experiencing the sense that all of the Godhead participates in the origin of the believer and the destiny of the believer and the origin of the church and the destiny of the church. The church was planned by the Father, purchased by the Son, preserved by the Holy Spirit. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father planned to save you. In history past, God the Son died for you. And now Paul points to the Holy Spirit who is present in our life and walks with us into the future until the final consummation. And we discover that we are saved and sealed and secure in the Holy Spirit. Francis Bacon wrote, quote, Some books are to be tasted, others swallowed, some few to be chewed and digested, unquote. These few verses need to be carefully chewed and digested. Paul continues his song of praise. Paul sings praise to the Father, remember, for choosing us, adopting us, accepting us. Paul sings praise to the Son for our ransom, our redemption, our reconciliation. And now Paul sings praise to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. We are saved, we are sealed, we are secured in a very real sense. Our salvation is a finished legal transaction with the Holy Spirit who serves as the sign and the signer and the signature. I don't think Stevie Wonder had our salvation in mind when he wrote the song, Sign, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours. Some of you remember, it's, it's really a song about false assurance. He's saying, like a fool, I went and stayed too long. Now I'm wondering if your love's still strong. You know the song. Ooh, baby, here I am, signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. You know, you, you remember. The sign, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. And remember, the song is, is about a person who's insecure in their relationship. And Paul is writing to people 
who might be feeling insecure in their relationship with God. Have you ever wondered or have you ever experienced a sense of insecurity in a relationship that you may have grown up with? Insecurity in your relationship with your mom or dad or brothers or sisters or or peers or your partner. You wonder if they might leave you or forsake you. And maybe you've grown up in a world where the people who come into your life seem quite content to leave you. Some people feel that way about God. They think that God is looking for a reason to abandon the relationship, to give up on the relationship. Fear of God leaving generates this lack of assurance and a lack of confidence. It generally robs us of joy. It generates insecurity, robs us of hope. I think God knows how desperately we need assurance in our life. We need assurance of love, assurance of friendship. We know that that's true in the real relationships that we have in the real world. We want the people who are in our life, who are a part of our life to say, I love you. I care about you. You're important to me. And so Paul, I think, understands exactly that same thing. He understands that we need assurance. And I think that there are two kinds of assurance. There's a kind of a false assurance and there's a kind of firm assurance. False assurance leads us away from our dependence upon God and grace and mercy. Firm assurance is based on God's promises and God's word and God's character. Our assurance of God's care and Christ's Resurrection and the Spirit's presence in our life is repeatedly given to us. And so Paul will once again remind us of our salvation. And not only are we saved by the Father and the Son, we're also saved by the Holy Spirit. Look at at verse 13 at the beginning of the verse. In him, that's Jesus, you also trusted After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in your study, you might ignore what's obvious. I want you to put on your thinking cap and look back at verse 12. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of the glory of his glory. In him, you also trusted. Paul goes from in him that we who first trusted. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his companions. He's talking about the Jewish people who came to Ephesus and told them the story of how they trusted the Lord Jesus. And now his attention turns to the people of Ephesus almost notably the Gentiles, and in one sweeping verse, Paul describes the whole process of salvation. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, it tells how a sinner becomes a saint. First, 
He hears the gospel of salvation. Remember Paul writes to the Romans and he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is the good news that Christ has died for our sins, that he was buried, that he came back to life again. The word of truth is the gospel, the good news of our salvation. So even then, the Holy Spirit is present, convicting us of sin, pointing us to Jesus and the work of the Savior in John 16, 18. And I want to point something else out to you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God but hearing alone doesn't bring salvation. It has to be hearing and believing. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Have you ever been frustrated because you told someone the gospel? You know, God loves you. Jesus loves you. How can I help you understand the gospel of his love? How can I help you understand the grace that's available to you? The forgiveness and the hope that's found in Jesus. And they hear the words, but they don't believe the words. It is true that faith comes by hearing, but it has to also be accompanied by believing. So what role does the Holy Spirit play in our salvation? Alan Redpath wrote, quote, The Holy Spirit's great task is to carry on the work for which Jesus sacrificed his throne and his life, the redemption of fallen humanity, unquote. I had the privilege of meeting Alan Redpath at a pastor's conference that we had years and years ago. He wrote Victorious Christian Living. He wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians. He was a pastor in Britain, a great man who loved the Lord. And I'll never forget someone asked him this question. He says, how can you tell a spiritual man? His simple reply was, wet eyes, bent knees, He understood that it isn't just theological understanding. It's the reality of what it means to know Jesus personally. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God, unquote. This birth by the Spirit is called the new birth. The new birth is the work of, Of the Holy Spirit who places the believer in a right relationship with God. It is the work of God, not man, my friend Don Stewart wrote. The new birth comes when a person is drawn by the Holy Spirit, convicted by the Holy Spirit. They hear the word. They understand the word. They're born again by the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? It means that no matter what I say, no matter how passionately I say it, no matter how persuasively I say it, There'll be people who remain unconvinced and unconverted. This work is a work by the Spirit that only the Spirit can do. 
In John chapter 1, verse 13, John writes, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This born-again experience can only come from the Holy Spirit. Again, it isn't just, I'm going to suggest to you, there is a, there's a portion of it where you hear the gospel, remember? You believe the gospel, and you believe it with all your heart. And the Holy Spirit confirms this by manifesting himself in your heart. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, points people to Jesus, changes the heart, Ezekiel 36, 27. Remember, the, the ancient prophet said, I'm going to give you, there's going to come a time where I'm going to take away your stony heart and I'm going to give you a brand new heart. And it's the Holy Spirit who transforms the sinner into a saint. So when do we receive the Holy Spirit? We hear the gospel. We trust Jesus. We believe Jesus, having heard the word of the truth, the gospel of our salvation. The New Testament teaches that we receive the Holy Spirit after we hear, when we believe, Jesus. We believe that he's our Lord and our Savior. And again, I'm going to suggest to you that it isn't just simply intellectual assent but rather there's a moment of trust and affirmation. One of the most famous stories that, that helped me understand this was the story of a guy who strung a line across Niagara Falls. And he said to the cheering crowd, do you believe that I can walk across this, these falls on that rope? And they all clapped and cheered. And then he walked across. And then he took a wheelbarrow and he said, do you think I can take this wheelbarrow put it on the rope and cross. And they cheered and said, yes. And then he said, will you get into the wheelbarrow? And nobody cheered. And nobody clapped. You see, it's one thing to believe that he can do it. And it's another thing to believe that he can do it with you in it. And that's the invitation. God, by the power of his Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus, invites you to get into this wheelbarrow, believing that God is going to take you through this thing called life and safely deliver you into heaven. You don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit. You don't have to beg for the Holy Spirit. You don't have to plead for the presence of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul writes, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Or did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? You don't receive the Holy Spirit by being a good person, by following the rules and obeying the instructions. It's confidence and trust. In Galatians 4, 6, it says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son. When it says the Spirit of his Son, that's another name for the Holy Spirit. He's called the Spirit of the Son. He's called the Spirit of Truth. He's called the Spirit of Life. And he says, and because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son 
into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a realization that you are a child of God. All born-again followers of Jesus, believers in Jesus, possess the Holy Spirit. The presence or the absence of the Spirit isn't predicated or based on your age or your maturity or your immaturity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? I want to remind you of something when he's writing that. Let me just be blunt. Did the Corinthian believers have issues? Did they have problems? Did they have divisions? Did they sometimes not exercise discernment? Or could be characterized as being mature? But note what Paul says. Don't you know that you're the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? You mean even if I'm messed up? Immature? Inconsistent? The Christians in Corinth had a boatload of problems. The Christians in Denver sometimes have a boatload of problems. Yet Paul reminds them that the Holy Spirit lives in them, dwells in them. And look at the end of the verse, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Look what it says at the end of the verse. In whom also, speaking of Jesus, having believed, the word is pistis and it means trust in, rely on, cling to. Again, I'm going to suggest to you, it isn't just simply, hey, I acknowledge the facts surrounding the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. I think that there are literally millions of people that if you were to ask them, do you believe that there was such a person as Jesus? They would say yes. Do you believe that he lived a perfect life? Yes. Do you believe that he literally, not metaphorically, but literally died? Yes. Do you believe that he came back to life? Yes. So have you trusted him? Have you received him? Are you counting on him as your savior? The Holy Spirit is a gift given to all who believe the gospel and trust in Christ. And so he uses that term, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, I need you to understand something. The Holy Spirit isn't simply the promise of God. He isn't really simply the blessing of God. He isn't really simply the metaphor or symbol of the presence of God. He literally, the Holy Spirit, is the seal. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to prepare us for that place. Jesus goes to prepare a place for us. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us and prepares us for the place where we're going to eventually wind up. I think that that's such a powerful thought. The word sealed is the Greek word spragidzo. To seal something is to mark it. 
Uh, we don't necessarily engage in seals all that often in our culture and society, but it, there, it wasn't that long ago when if, if you had to transact property, you would have to go to the bank and you would have a buyer and you would have a seller and the banker would take a seal and you would have to agree to certain things. And the moment that both of them agreed and signed, then they would set their seal upon it. The Harper Bible Dictionary has an excellent article on ancient seals. It says thousands of tiny seals, any, any of them like small spools in shape and size have been found in excavations in the Middle East. Um, I'm going to leave the article for just a moment. Um, imagine something that looks like a spool of thread. It's round and it has a hole through it and there's writing on it. What they would do with this seal is they would roll it like you would a, 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 a roll of thread over a clay and it would mark it. And, and it says they were, quote, used to affix the ancient equivalent of written signatures onto documents and also, quote, widely used whenever security from molestation was important, unquote, as in the sealing of jars, of wine, of oil, bales of good, unquote. Schofield's note is very helpful in my Bible. He says, the Holy Spirit is himself the seal. In the symbolism of the scripture, a seal represents a finished transaction. This is great. Not an unfinished, not with something that is yet to be done. It signifies a finished transaction. Number two, it signifies ownership. Number three, it signifies security. In a very real sense, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer provides all of those things. We are saved. We are owned by God. That salvation and ownership is secure. When a person comes to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and then marks that person as owned by Christ. In a very real sense, you are God's precious property. The sealing follows believing. And one Greek scholar writes, quote, the divine image in the possession of the spirit is impressed on the heart and the conscious enjoyment of it assures the believer of perfection and glory. The seal remains unbroken as a token of safety. You mean God's not going to break the seal? Renege on the deal? No, Romans 5, 5, Paul writes, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts. How? By the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. If you sense the presence of the love of God in your heart, it isn't because you made that up. It's because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 1.22, who also sealed us, given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, unquote. Ephesians 4.30 later, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
You'll remember in the New Testament, a seal is affixed on the tomb of Jesus. The seal is ordered on behalf of the Jewish priests who insist that Jesus' followers said he might come back to life. And we know that dead people don't come back to life. So the Romans should set a seal on the tomb because in order to break that seal, you literally have to confront the Roman government. And guess what? Does a resurrected Jesus care about the seal of Rome? Does an angel coming from heaven go, oh, there's a Roman seal. I don't want to upset anybody's sensibilities. No, he breaks the seal. He doesn't roll away the stone in order to let Jesus out. It's so that you could see in. And then you ask that question, and you should ask that question. Well, you just read, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Does grieving the Holy Spirit put pressure on the seal? So much so that it could break the seal and nullify the deal. No. That's not the conclusion that we can draw from this passage. The Bible just simply warns us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. God's given you the Holy Spirit so that you could live and love like you're supposed to. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is for the believer once for all. It's a one-time act that gives the believer an ongoing assurance that we are God's children. Think, let's connect the dots now. Entitled to the blessings of the Father. Entitled to the benefits of the Son. Open to what the Holy Spirit provides us. The seal implies, like I said, a finished transaction. It also implies ownership. It also implies security, assurance. Think carefully. The Holy Spirit isn't just, doesn't just simply supply the seal. He is the seal. If you can break the Holy Spirit, if you can make the Holy Spirit go away, Paul is basically telling us, the Father has planned our redemption. Jesus has purchased our redemption. The Holy Spirit protects and secures our redemption. And again, remember another purpose of a seal is to determine authenticity. Just like the signature on a check authorizes the check. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer authenticates that you're not a make-believer. That you're a genuine believer. In Romans 8, 9, it says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, 
He is not his. What are you, what are you saying? It isn't the church that you go to that determines that you're a Christian. It isn't even a set of religious instructions that you adhere to, although I believe there, there is such a thing as essential Christianity. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you that makes you a Christian. This should cause you to ask a different question. Can a person believe they're a Christian when in fact they're not? Ask them. Are you a Christian? See what they say to you. I go to church. That's not what I ask you. I read a Bible. That's not what I ask you. I pray. I go to church. I read the Bible. That's not what I ask you. Are you a Christian? Not not. Well, I'm not a Muslim and I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not an atheist and I'm not an agnostic. Are you a Christian? Have you trusted Jesus as your savior? Have you trusted him for your future? Does the Holy Spirit live inside of you, confirming the fact that you're a Christian? Are you a current follower of Jesus, but you are not in the flesh. Remember in the Bible, in the New Testament, particularly when Paul uses the term, the flesh isn't your flesh and bones. It isn't the nerves and the tendons that hang from your body. Your flesh is everything that you are apart from Christ, apart from the spirit of God. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. It's the presence or the absence of the spirit in your life that determines the reality of whether or not you're truly in Christ. And of course, whether or not you're truly in this thing that the Bible calls the church. And then we find ourselves secure in the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Let's connect the dots. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit changes the human heart. The Holy Spirit imparts the new birth. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer. And there are no real and lasting blessings from the Father. There are no benefits in the Son unless you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And now we begin to see the logic and the amazing thing that Paul is trying to tell us. The presence of the Holy Spirit, listen carefully to Paul, guarantees our inheritance that it's the Holy Spirit, listen carefully, the Holy Spirit is legitimately, in reality, our down payment or proof that we're secure in the Son, that we have security in heaven. The word guarantee has been translated earnest, pledge, down payment. 
In our culture, earnest is a word that has lost its meaning in our culture. If you're in the real estate business, when you're buying or selling property, sometimes a real estate agent will ask the buyer on behalf of the seller to give an earnest, that's a down payment, to show that you are genuinely not just interested, but you're going to make every effort to purchase this property. When we purchased our house, I put a down payment of $56,000. But it was just the down payment. It wasn't the entire price. I had to pay a whole lot more. This is where the, the analogy kind of breaks down. Is the Holy Spirit just simply the first part of many parts of blessings. No, you're not going to get more of the Holy Spirit later. It isn't like, hey, you know what? I'm saved and the Holy Spirit came inside of me. But I'm going to get more Holy Spirit later. No, the Holy Spirit has been given as a token, a pledge, a down payment. Listen carefully. That all the promises given by the Father... All the promises given by the Father in the Son are going to come to fruition because you've been delivered from the penalty of sin. You're being delivered from the presence of uh, the, the power of sin. You will eventually be delivered from the presence of sin. So how are we to think about our guarantee? How are we to think about our inheritance? How are we to think about the purchased possession? In the ancient world, world the, the word used for guarantee meant partial payment or down payment, or the promise of a future payment so that the buyer could complete the transaction. In the ancient world, the pledge was binding. We might think of it as a non-refundable deposit. We are the present possessors of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit now. We experience the Spirit in fullness. We live in Christ. We live, according to Paul later, in heaven. Heaven isn't just simply a place where you go in the future. Paul unveils the reality that in every sense of the word, you're saved forever right now. The Lord isn't going to back out of the deal. The Lord isn't going to refuse to make good on the deal. The Lord isn't going to say, you know what? Jesus shed his blood on the cross. I've given the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, but now I'm going to take the Holy Spirit back. You know what Paul is saying? The Lord is going to see our relationship through to the end. In this instance, the the end is our death and our future resurrection and the placement of the believer in glory. This word here is a euphemism for our final reunion in heaven. Glory is such a marvelous word. Glory, let, let me just help you with the word. Glory is one word that describes the sum and the substance of all of the attributes of God. We use this one word, glory. 
Imagine you use the word glory, but you begin to put something in a box. The, the aseity of God, which means God is a, is a self-existent creature. He, he, he was never born. He was never created. One of the attributes of God is he's a self-existent creature. One of the attributes of God is he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. When you think of all of the attributes of God, you put them in this can marked glory. And when you fill up the can with everything that we know about God, that's glory. That's what he's talking about. Now, some people might argue, well, can the believer lose the Holy Spirit? In the Old Testament, David prayed, don't take, don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me in Psalm 51.11. We see examples of the Holy Spirit leaving Samson in Judges 16.20. We see the Holy Spirit leaving Saul in 1 Samuel 16.14. And some have argued that in the Old Testament economy, the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in a person on a permanent basis, but rather comes upon a, a person for acts of service, for special tasks. Whatever the case... The New Testament, Jesus promises the believer in John 14, 16, listen carefully because this is really important. And I will pray the Father. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to pray to God, the Father. And he will give you another helper. That's the Holy Spirit. That he may abide with you. Who knows the last word? Forever. Can you imagine if it said, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you if things work out. If you're not a jerk. If you're not a stupid idiot. If you're not a shameless person. If you remember to go to church. If you remember not to fall asleep in Gino's Bible study. I'm going to read it again. And I will pray the Father. And he will give you another helper. That he may abide with you. Forever. No one has ever asked me. In 16 years on the radio, people said, you know, what's something that no one has ever asked you that you wish they'd ask you so that you can answer it? No one has ever asked me, can God the Father and God the Son ditch God the Holy Spirit? Yet here the implication is that God has left his Holy Spirit both as proof and pledge of your adoption, your acceptance, your ransom, your redemption, your forgiveness, your salvation. It is safe and it is secure. You know what's interesting to me? The Greek word translated guarantee is the modern Greek word in the Greek language, arabon, 
If you, if you go to Greece to this very day and you use that word arabon, you know what it means? Engagement ring in the modern Greek language. They use the ancient Greek word to describe a pledge that is given that communicates affection and love and commitment. How many times has a girl said, show me the ring? Show me the ring. You know, I love you and I want this and I want that. Make a commitment. Show me the ring. And this is interesting to me. Because the Holy Spirit, again, isn't just a symbol. Ladies, if you ever lost your engagement ring, does that mean you lose your love? Or you lose your lover? I have a friend who cleans out sewer lines. And I said, have you ever found treasure? And he goes, no, most people don't put valuable things in the sewer. He said, but we did have this one lady who had a $20,000 ring. And for whatever reason, she placed it on the toilet and it fell into the toilet and it went down the drain. And my friend said, don't flush the toilet. And they go, okay. And so they show up and the guy says, you didn't flush the toilet, right? Well, you know, it was lost in the upstairs room. We just flushed the downstairs toilet. And the guy goes, don't you realize that all of your toilets are connected and they all go down to the same sewer? So they lifted it up. They went down the drain. Somewhere, as it's making its way to the sewage system in Denver, there's a $20,000 diamond. Just because you have a symbol, it doesn't represent... The reality. Now, think about this. God has given the Holy Spirit as our engagement ring. But it's the kind of engagement ring that you could never lose. That you can never ditch. Paul adds, of the purchased possession. The Greek phrase is peri, poesis. It's translated five different ways in the New Testament. This purchased possession. The word is translated obtain in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. The obtaining in 2 Thessalonians 2.14. The saving in Hebrews 10.39. That which is peculiar, 1 Peter 2.9. We're a peculiar people. In the true sense of the term, it's described by the Greek scholar Vincent, quote, the word originally means a making, to remain over and above. Hence, preservation, preservation for one's self, or acquisition, or something that's acquired, or something that's possessed. But it, it doesn't tell us what the purchased possession is. And so, Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, The redemption of the purchased possession refers to the redemption of the body at the return of Christ. 
Redemption is experienced in three stages. We've been redeemed through faith in Christ, Ephesians 1, 7. We're being redeemed as the Spirit works in our life to make us more like Christ, Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. We shall be redeemed when Christ returns, and we're going to be like him. This body, this body, this body isn't going to last. It isn't going to make it. Paul writes later, the outward person is perishing, but the inward person is being renewed day by day. So there's very strong evidence that the purchased possession is our future glorious body. Other people suggest that the purchased possession might be this world. It's a broken world. It's a hurt world. It's an empty world. It's a dark, bleak world. But there is a God and there is a Jesus. He is going to redeem the world. He's purchased the planet. It's going, we're going to be given a new heaven and a new earth. Some have even suggested that the purchased possession might be the church. A reference to the bride of Christ, which is going to be redeemed and reconciled to the Father. Here's what I'm sure of. It almost certainly refers to your body coming back to life. But in my way of thinking, that doesn't exclude a new heaven and a new earth. It doesn't exclude a redeemed church. And so if someone says to me, is the purchased possession your body? I would say, yeah. Is it the world? Yeah. Is it the bride of Christ, the church? Uh, yeah. I think all of those fit. Paul repeats at the end of the sentence, look at what it says, to the praise of his glory. Remember in verse 6? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Remember verse 12? That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And now, to the praise of his glory. Think. To the praise of the glory of the Father. Remember what I said about that word glory? It incorporates all the attributes of God. To the praise of the glory of the Son. Remember what I said about that word? It incorporates all the attributes of God. To the praise of the glory, to the Holy Spirit, it incorporates all of the attributes of, his, of God. And so Paul doesn't just give us a theological lecture on the identity of the Godhead. He sings a song of praise as he begins to consider all that the Father has done, all that the Son has done, all that the Spirit has done. You are saved. You are sealed. You are secure by the Holy Spirit. Paul has described the blessings from the Father. He's described the benefits in the Son. He's described our belongings in the Spirit. The Spirit lives in us. The Spirit changes us. The Spirit produces fruit. The Spirit makes us more like Christ. The Spirit builds up the believer as a part of an individual, but also as a part of a holy dwelling. The Spirit is in you. And the Spirit is in me. And we are part of a body. A.W. Tozier writes magnificently, quote, Do you want to be filled with a Spirit? 
who though he is like Jesus in his gentleness and love, will nevertheless demand to be the Lord of your life? Are you willing to let your personality be taken over by another, even if that other be the Spirit of God himself? If the Spirit takes charge of your life, he will expect unquestioning obedience in everything. He will not tolerate in you the self-sins, even though they're permitted and excused by most Christians. You'll find the spirit to be in sharp opposition to the easy ways of the world and of the mixed multitude within the precincts of religion. He will be jealous over you for good. He won't allow you to boast or swagger or show off. He'll take the direction of your life away from you. He'll reserve the right to test you, to discipline you, to chasten you for your soul's sake. He may strip you of many of the borderline pleasures which other Christians enjoy, but which are for you a, a source of refined evil. Through it all, he will enfold you with a love so vast, so mighty, so all-embracing, so wondrous that your very losses will seem like great gains and your small pains like pleasure. I let him say it because he said it so much better than I could ever say it. But make no, make no mistake about it. It's one thing for me to say something to you. It's another thing for the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to remind you, to convict you, to convince you, to empower you, to embolden you, and to strengthen you for the task at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to you. Lord, we're grateful for all that's been given to us, for our blessings from the Father, for our benefits in the Son, and for our belongings in the Spirit. Lord, we pray that this would serve <laughs> almost like a pack so that we can take it on our journey, so that we could remember who you are but also Lord so that we could remember who we are and so that we could walk in such a way and live in such a way that you would be honored that you would be praised that you would be glorified that we wouldn't be content to simply know more things but that we would desire with all of our hearts with love and affection to praise the Father and to praise the Son and to praise the Holy Spirit for all that's been given and all that's been done. In Jesus' name. And the saints said, let's stand.